So Jane, we're going to conclude James today. James um, finishes up the final verses of his letter with some very specific pastoral concerns for the church. And I have to say, I was a little dejected. I'm sad to be leaving, James. I was thinking, I, James, I wish you'd written 20 instead of five chapters. Then I looked, ah, oh, but we get to go to Peter's letters next, so I'll be good. So let's walk through this last passage together. James 5, he, he, he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you'll be condemned. Above all doesn't mean that what follows is more important than everything else he said. Above all is a, a literary device that can signify I'm coming in for a landing. And so he's indicating the finish line is coming, but it's also not just that. Could he, could, he could have used other phrases to say I'm coming in for landing. So it's both I'm finishing, but it's also he's above all do not swear gets at the heart of James's concern for personal integrity and relational unity, matching words to heart, matching heart to words, and then changed hearts bring changed relationships. And we've seen this over and over in his letter, words flow from the heart, words implicate the condition of the heart, and words impact people. And so when he says, do not swear, he's not merely saying, don't use profanity. I mean, we shouldn't, that's covered elsewhere in scripture. But this doesn't mean, and this, this also doesn't mean we should never take an oath, like a marriage vow, an oath of office, or in a courtroom. So Paul frequently appears to, he appears to take an oath several times in his letter. Seven times he says something like, I call God as my witness. So this is not this command, like if you just get this right, don't make any oaths, you've kind of covered it. Earlier, James has said that we shouldn't presume on God when planning the future. But he wasn't saying that the, the way you, you obey that is by adding a verbal formula, God willing, God willing, whenever you mention future plans. He was addressing the heart. Don't live, don't think, don't plan as if you control outcomes. You could add this God willing to a phrase and your heart could be far from trusting God with the future. Here he's not saying, okay, if you just make sure you don't ever take an oath, you're good to go. He's always going for the heart. So verbal oaths here is not the main issue, the heart is. Words matter. It does matter what we say, but words originate with the heart. So look at the similarity between what Jesus said in Matthew 5, the famous Sermon on the Mount, and what James, his half-brother, says here. You see how James is directly getting this stuff from his Lord. In the passage in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is outlining what life in the kingdom of God is like now. And it's different than what many people thought it was going to be. And over and over in that sermon, he says something like, you've heard it said, and I say to you. In those instances, he's, he goes from a focus on externals to internals. He's going for the heart. And so James is getting at the same thing here. Our truthfulness should be such a reliable constant that we need no oath to support it. From our transformed hearts should flow transformed lives, words, and actions. And so if you need to say, I swear to God I'm telling the truth, then every time you don't swear, can we assume you're lying, you know? And can you see how bad relationships have become if you have to add qualifiers like this? The condemnation here is not because of adding extra words like, I swear I'm telling the truth. And the solution is, okay, to, to get at what he's saying here, just make sure you only say yes and no, like a robot, yes, no. The judgment's aimed at the heart and in the context of community unity that James is so passionate about. 
the lower the trust between us, the more perfect the communication has to be. The higher the trust, the more room there is for mistakes in our words. And this is really important because James has already said that we're never going to be perfect in our words. So if relationships depend on perfection and communication, we're never going to have good relationships. And I think probably what was happening was that trust was low between the people in the church. You can pick this up from his letter because they were not living their lives consistent with the gospel and they were resorting to using oaths to try and convince each other the truth of what they were saying. And this is a losing proposition. If trust is low and I don't believe you, how would adding, I swear to God, change things? You know, it just made me think you're more unreliable. But if they were to learn to love and forgive, to have the gospel in here coming out of their mouths, put each other's interests first, they could build a kind of trust that would allow for straightforward communication. You could just, if Jim Lewis says something to me, I just, okay, that's exactly what he means. If he doesn't say it perfectly, it's okay. Because what he, he's saying, what he means, there's no hidden agenda here. When trust is low, no matter what's said, it's taken wrong. And then trust goes lower, and then communication gets harder. So in the church, we're to break this death spiral by the grace of God and our own personal hard choices to forgive and give room to people to fail, to live like what we believe is true. So our sanctification, becoming like Christ, our, our justification, being saved, is completely a work of God. Our sanctification, becoming like Christ over time, is a collaboration between God's grace and human grit. And, that's, and this is key to understanding James. Hearts changed by our relationship with God, showing up in our own personal choices, impacting our relationship with one another, bringing glory to God. So let's press on. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, James packed a lot in that paragraph. I started thinking, is he running out of time? Did he run out of paper? I mean, he is just like, boom, 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 getting it in here at the end. And of course, prayer is a topic. It's mentioned in every verse. But in context, the community was experiencing trials, trials that threatened to separate them from trusting Christ and trusting one another. This is similar to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians when he said, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, giving this kind of a broad umbrella approach to life. And James breaks down life into two situations, having trouble, feeling happy. If you're in trouble, experiencing difficulty, you should pray. And we might assume that James is encouraging us to pray for God to remove the trouble. That's not unreasonable, but it's probably not the full story because we've already seen that James's concern in trials is that we endure with the right heart and an alternative perspective that those of the world have who don't know God. If you remember back in chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Not that we shouldn't ask God to take trials away, but we need to see them like Sarah just told us, for more than just, God, stop this, please. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So we can assume the prayer that he's encouraging here is not just, God, take the trouble away, but God, give me your grace and give me the grit to endure. The other situation James describes as, if you're happy, sing songs of praise. So two big life categories, in trouble, feeling happy. In either case, what you should do is turn to God. 
And the word James uses here denotes a state of emotions. And uh, some translations call it if you're feeling cheerful. So if you're feeling groovy, great, turn towards God. And a reminder to turn towards God is often more necessary when we're feeling good than when we're suffering. And his challenge is turn to God when you're not doing well, challenge to God when you are doing well. Then he gives a subcategory of that first general circumstance if you're in trouble. And if your specific kind of trouble is physical sickness. Now this is not a to-do list. He's giving big theological themes, packing them into a paragraph. That if you get this checklist right, then you're obligating God to do certain things. So what is James? If you take that approach to Scripture, then you make mistakes because you have to see each passage in its context, local context, chapter, book, testament, and its larger context, the whole Bible. It's one book from God. Just like if someone were to take one of your letters or emails out of context, they could make you say things that you don't intend. So James is trying to communicate first and foremost that we should turn to the Lord and to the, to the Lord's people, the church, when we're suffering. Asa was one of Israel's relatively good kings. There weren't very many. And he didn't even finish well himself. He was faithful to God's covenant for years. I mean, at one point early on, he even, he even kicked his own mom out of the palace because she started worshiping idols. He was so committed to the truth. As he got older, he got used to peace. He forgot who the source of peace was from. And then faced with the choice of continuing to trust God, even though it was going to cost him, he took the wrong path. He relied on foreign kings and not God. He relied on his own gold and not God. And it cost him. And when a prophet came to challenge him, like, what are you doing? Do you think this is how you got here? He threw the prophet in jail, and then he became vindictive towards his own people. When our heart goes south, then relationships go south. And the final indictment on him shows the real condition of his heart. It says that he was diseased in his feet. It was a life-threatening and life-ending disease. But even in a disease, he didn't seek the help from the Lord, only from physicians. Nothing wrong with seeking help from physicians. Although I'd be terrified to think about what physicians at his time in history would have been doing. But there's nothing wrong with seeking help from physicians. The point of Scripture here is even in his disease, he, he only sought physicians' help. That's how far he'd gone. He didn't even turn to the Lord. He drifted away from the truth of God. All his former passion for God were just phantom memories, the dust of youth. They were taken by the constant pull of life, and this can happen. He became so hardened that even in fatal illness, he didn't turn to God. And it can go either way. As life goes on, external circumstances can turn our hearts towards or away from God. John Paul Sartre was an influential 20th century philosopher, and he was an atheist most of his life and convinced a lot of people to disbelieve in God along with him. And he had a long-term relationship with a fellow atheist philosopher named Simone Beauvoir. At the end of his life, Sartre turned towards Christianity, and his lover, philosopher, partner, was infuriated because she felt betrayed by him. How dare he believe in God just because he's facing imminent death? And she remained just so irrational. And she remained, as far as we know, resolute in her own denial of God to the very end. And what happened to Sartre is common. Illness and impending death opening the heart to God. I've seen it happen. What happened to Beauvoir is also common. Hardness unto death. It's been said there are no atheists in foxholes or on deathbeds. That's just simply not true. There are. There are atheists everywhere, and there are believers everywhere. 
and people can and do choose to turn to God or from God in all of life's circumstances. Now, God does use pain. C.S. Lewis said pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world, but people can sleep through even a megaphone. And James is advocating for turning towards God and the community of God in our times of trouble. So what about this whole ask the elders to pray and anoint with oil? Well, elders were recognized leaders in a local church. They weren't spiritually special people. But ideally, biblically, they're leaders who had proven to be faithful people. There was evidence that God had called them to their roles and responsibility, and they had an evidence of a walk with God. As you read the New Testament, you can see sometimes that ideal wasn't always worked out, but James is assuming it's true because it ought to be true. And so call leaders in the church, people with authentic walks to God, with God to prayer. And then the use of oil, there's dispute about what that was actually about. Some think it was medicinal. That's doubtful. For me, it's doubtful. Some think it was sacramental, meaning that somehow it was a conduit for God's healing power. I also don't think that's likely. I think it was probably a physical action symbolizing heart consecration, like baptism. It was a symbol touching that, that was indicating we're setting this person apart, this person is setting themselves apart. And oil was used in that, in that society as a sign of setting someone apart. Samuel anointed David with oil saying, God has chosen you to be king. Oil didn't make him king. It symbolized what God had done and David's willing heart. So I think it's fine to use oil, fine to not use oil. Just like it's fine to say God willing and talking about your future plans, but what you really want to make sure is your heart is saying God willing. And if you use oil, good. If you don't, good. It's about what's going on in here. Now, clearly this person's sick enough that the church leader would have to come to him or her. And here's three questions come to my mind. You may have more different ones, but here are the three that came to my mind. Is this a guarantee of healing if you do this just right? If there is no healing, whose faith failed? And if anybody's, and is sickness always a result of sin? So I'm going to fly over these questions for time's sake, not because they're unimportant. So first, no, it's not a guarantee. Throughout Scripture, there are, impli- there are conditional, implied conditional promises. You'll find these over and over. The condition is not always stated in every instance, but it's there in Scripture as a whole. So one kind of big example was when God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, they're doomed. Forty days, I'm going to overthrow the city. There was no, in Scripture, no stated conditional unless they repent, but it was there. And Nineveh did repent. They turned to God, and God didn't destroy them. So did God lie when he said, I'm going to destroy them in 40 days? No, there was, a, there was an implied condition, and you see this often in Scripture. So what's the implied condition here in James related to healing based on what we know the whole Bible? Well, the implied condition is the larger purposes of God. Paul prayed over and over for people to be prayed, and they did. Even people who were dead, I mean, that's pretty significant healing. And when he asked God to heal him, he prayed three times, and God says, stop praying, I'm not healing you. Um, Healing, physical healing is not my purposes in this particular illness. So there's no formula that if you do it just right, you obligate God. That answer also speaks to the second question, whose faith failed if the person is not healed? Well, no one's had to fail. Faith trusts God to heal. Faith trusts God when he doesn't heal. The ultimate purpose of life, I hate to tell you, is not stay, stay healthy and then die. I mean, by all means, stay as healthy as you can. But if your goal is stay healthy, death is the ultimate ill health. And so God has his purposes. Is, 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 he has purposes in our illness, in our healing, in our health, 
and our troubles, and when we're feeling groovy, all of it. He has his purposes, and our purpose is his glory. Many years ago, I was downtown preparing to lead a Bible study, and my dad had become very ill, and as I was praying, getting ready for the Bible study, I was praying for my dad as well, and as best I could tell, as I prayed, I believe God wanted me to take some friends after the meeting and go pray for my dad. I thought that he may be healed. And let me be clear, God, I, I'm convinced God is 100% um, clear in how he speaks, and, and I'm nowhere near that in how I hear. So I have complete confidence in God's ability to speak, way less confidence in my or anybody else's ability to heal. So I said, as best I can tell, this is what I think God wants us to do. So after the meeting, I took some people with me as witnesses. When I arrived, my dad had a high fever. He was sort of out of his, he was not aware of his surroundings, was groaning in pain. So I went over and picked up the phone. They had these things back then called phones that were wired into the wall. And um, I picked up the phone to call 911, but I thought I should pray first. And so I put my hands on his head, prayed in faith, prayed in faith in God. I, I didn't know what God, I thought I knew, but I didn't know for sure what God wanted to do. And his head was burning up. He was groaning, kind of delirious. And immediately his head went cool under my hand. He came to his senses and sat up on the side of the bed and wanted to go eat. So that happened. I also prayed for my mom many times. And I was beside her bed when she died of brain cancer. I prayed in faith for my dad's healing. I prayed for faith in my mom up to her death. But it was faith in God, not faith in what I thought I could obligate God to do. And James is advocating for faith in God revealed in faithful actions. And these actions include asking God for healing when we're sick. But in line with the overall theme of his letter and the whole Bible, trusting God's purposes in all things. Remember, remember that first chapter. So the final question, is sickness always a result of an individual's sin? No, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. We, the if is conditional. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven, meaning it's not always the case that there's sin involved. In John 9, Jesus and his followers encountered a man who was blind from birth. And they said, okay, Jesus, whose sin? I mean, this guy has a physical problem. Who's, whose fault is it, his or his parents? That was the prevailing view of the time. There was no third option. Nobody sinned. Neither, Jesus said, his blindness was that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus healed him. By the way, for me, interesting and maybe a little bit gross, the way part of Jesus' healing was he made some mud with dirt in his own spit. You can read it. I, I think just like the oil was symbolic, this mud was symbolic. Then he had him go wash in a local pool of water. There was nothing magic about Jesus' spit mud but I think it was because this man who couldn't see could feel in his physical body. And, it, and in washing in the water, it, it was tangible for the man to connect the memory of his healing. So there are times when illness and a host of other life problems are directly tied to our sin. So we need to keep taking advantage of God's offer to us that we repent of our sin. But it's not so simple that every problem is related to a specific sin. When we're sick, we should take appropriate medicine, go to the doctor. We should seek the Lord to see if there's sin to confess. We should ask others to pray for us, perhaps rebuke Satan when appropriate. That's a fully biblical and fully rational approach to life. It's irrational to seek only doctors as if we're only physical bodies. Of course we're not only bodies, as if there's no God. 
It's also rational to only pray as if we are only souls and not embodied beings. And finally, it's irrational to not include others in our prayers and trouble as if we're not designed by God for community. A fully biblical, which is always a fully rational approach, pray, get medicine, get medical help when necessary, engage the church. This is who we are. This is who we are as people. Now, Jesus said in John 14, 14, you may ask for anything in my name and I'll do it. Because that's pretty straightforward. It looks like if I ask in his name, tack on that word in your name, that I obligate him. In my name was not then and not now a magical incantation. It doesn't obligate God. It's a statement that means if I ask in his name means I'm asking in his authority. I'm asking according to his will. Years ago, I had tried to get funding for I was going to bring in a speaker to speak to my air and army chaplains in the state that I was overseeing. And I tried for about nine months to get funding and couldn't get funding because as much as I wanted to, the na- in the name of Chaplain Williams, didn't get funding. And so I was in my boss's office. His name was General Taffanelli. And he said, anything else, anything you need from me, Terry? And I said, well, I'm trying to get funding for this event. And his executive officer was a guy named Rodney Seba, who was two offices down. So I'm trying to get funding for this event. And the name of Terry didn't, didn't get anything done. And he said, he hollered down the hall, Rodney. And I hear, moving. And Rodney Seba comes down the hall and he says, um, Get Terry some funding. I had funding before I left the building that day. That's what happens when you go in the authority of, or the name of, somebody who actually has authority. So if I'd have just went around saying, in the name of General Taffanelli, give me money, I would have been fired. Something bad would have happened. So this is about the, what Jesus is saying here. It's when you ask in my authority, you ask according to my will, you're going to get it, which brings up the question of, well, then why pray at all? If he's going to do what he wants to do, why pray at all? Well, the best reason to pray is because he told us to pray. He's told us that our prayers matter in regards to what he's doing in the world. And you can turn this into a math problem. How does this work out? You can try to work it out on paper. That's fine. I choose to not do that. I, I know that it works in life. I can obey God, experience God. Somehow, somehow, God's will will be done, and my prayers matter. If you want to not pray until you figure that out, that's fine. I'd recommend that you pray and see God move. Look at verse 16. Confess your sins one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So here we see that it's not just go call for the spiritual leaders, but we're to pray for one another, and we're to remain in right relationship with one another because the prayer of a righteous person has great power to tap into the power of God. And then to emphasize that this is for everyone, all followers of Christ, he wrote, Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain, and then he prayed again, and it did rain. So Elijah was clearly an unusual man. Pretty amazing stuff happened. You can go read his story. But James is not focusing on his special place in history, but on the fact that he was a human being just like we are. So who is the righteous person, the person who's right with God? Elijah had his ups and downs just like we do. And the challenge as we read Scripture is not just to believe it's true, and it is, but that it's real. And I know that sounds redundant, but sometimes we separate there's true, kind of bible true, and then there's real, my real life. And it's true and it's real out there in your real life. Elijah 
and you and me, we're the same. You say, no, we're not. Yeah, we are. So now, with many New Testament letters, they end with greetings and a blessing, but James doesn't do that. He ends with a call to action. Of course he does. You have to love James. My brothers, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. And the, the sins that are being covered are the ones being turned back from walking away from God. If you go out and help people walk back or walk into the truth of God, then you're saving them from eternal death and from sins. You're not saving them. Jesus is, the gospel is, the truth is. And so James is challenging his readers, us, to do what he's been doing in this letter. Call others to live in the truth. And truth we know for James is not just content, but it's conduct. And so to wander from the truth is not just to leave biblical beliefs, but also to leave biblical behaviors. And so true to form, James ends with a call to action on behalf of others. Truth applied in community. Do what the gospel requires of you and call others to the same. Do what you can do to turn people onto the path of truth. This last um, Friday, Brett Lentz, who coaches baseball and teaches at Circle High, invited me to come speak to the Fellowship Christian Athlete Group that meets there during the, during the day. And it's in Tawanda. And as I was driving into Tawanda, I hadn't been there in many years, at, he invited me months ago, and I was, but I'd forgotten that the first time I ever spoke in public was at this little church in Tawanda. I pulled over and took a picture of it. It was terrible. It was like a 20-point ceremony. I just wore those people out. And then I spoke at that high school. It was the first time I'd spoken to students. And so it was kind of a walk down memory lane. And their, their focus for the year has been, what's your message? And I talked about how your life message is going to show up in the hearts and lives of other people. If you had a sign, if a sign were self-aware, if you had a sentient sign, it'd be terrible. But if you did, it, it wouldn't be saying, I wonder how good I look. I wonder if people think I'm a smart, funny, cool sign. I wonder if they like my message. The purpose of a sign is to point to what it signifies, something greater than itself. That's what the sign wants to do. And our life message is not about our own legacy, what others think of us, but our others are actually more closely aligning their lives with the reality of Christ as a result of their interactions with us. And so James is calling his readers to step up and join him in calling others to lives that align with the gospel. Our life message is what we communicate, the words we use. He talked about that in his letter, what we demonstrate and then what we duplicate, that other people's lives are being changed. Joy Akins is the chairman of the Wichita Chamber this year. She's one of our group leaders, and her, her strategic focus is faithful investment. This was at a, a lunch that they had um, to kind of kick off this messaging for the year, and I love this. And one of the things she said at this lunch was we want to help others level up personally and professionally in the Wichita community by faithful investment. And that's what James is concluding with. Each of us taking responsibility to help others level up spiritually, personally, to move into the truth, to get off that destructive path. And I would, I would um, describe our ministry at River as organized, organic, organized. What we do, we don't do perfectly, but we do it on purpose. We're not going to be perfect, but we are going to do things because we think this is what God has said to do. And our bottom line is we've tried to organize our ministry for relationships, and relationships are organic. So we're organized as a church to support faithful investment. And people have asked me many times over the years, how do I participate in church life? And they're not, not with ill will in mind, but they're, they're thinking there's got to be some secret door, some hidden way in the ministry here. I just can't find it. 
And I think, no, it really is as simple as it seems. I'm not trying to be evasive or ironic. Walk with Jesus, walk with people, invest your lives with others. Faithful investment over time turns into real impact. And that's what James is advocating for here. He's been challenging them to walk in the truth. Now he's saying, you go live that same way. It's going to include, of course, words and actions, but it's going to lead to thriving relationships. And so he's wrapping up with his main application. Watch your heart, he said. Align your life with the truth of the gospel. Watch your words. Now go after others and call them into the truth. Live a flourishing life. Communicate it, demonstrate it, duplicate it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for James, this man who lived and walked on our planet, who knew you, who knew the Lord Jesus in the flesh. Thank you for inspiring him to write these words. Thank you for protecting them so that we have them in our time. And I pray as we, as we leave this book and move on to what you said through your servant Peter, that you would um, make us people whose hearts and lives align more and more for your glory and for the good of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.